0: If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, we will give our attention to God's Word. If you uh, don't have a Bible of your own with you, you can follow along with me as I read. um, There's a blue Bible uh, at the end of the aisles of chairs, and you can follow along with me on page 984, or you can just listen as well. Uh, But let me invite you to stand as we join with... God's people around the globe today um, standing in deference as we give deference to God's Word. And we're going to read Colossians chapter 3, verses 1-14. through 14. Let's hear God's Word together. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving, one, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? God, would you open our eyes? Would you give us eyes to see the world as it is and see ourselves as we are because in your word you have made clear to us who you are. Would you help us to see Jesus? Would you help us to see and know and experience all that you are doing in us as we look to him? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. Well, several years ago, uh, in what at this point feels like a, a, a different lifetime for me, um, I, I was a uh, my wife and I lived in Scotland, in Edinburgh, Scotland. Um, we both went to grad school, and so we lived in, in in Edinburgh for three years. And for three years, every day as I walked into class in the morning, I walked past this construction site right on the main street in the in the heart of the city center. Of, of the city of Edinburgh. And there was this old building, and the construction company had like, covered it in tarps, so you couldn't really see the what the building actually looked like. And then there was a, you know, kind of a construction wall around the building, and it seemed like there was always just dirt and construction materials and stuff like pouring out of this, and it was just a mess. And I remember walking by this every morning on my way into class, wondering, what is going on? You couldn't see really what was behind there, and and uh, what, what are they doing behind this building, or behind the, you know, to this building? Um, and why is this, um, why is this really prime piece of real estate, why is it just such a dump? <laughs> um, but slowly, it began to be clear what they were doing behind, behind the wall and behind the, the curtain. Um, and this building I came to find out was actually the, um, the old post office building in the city of Edinburgh. And what they were doing is the construction company had built these um, out of steel beams, this massive kind of support structure on the inside and outside wall of the exterior of the building. And once they had built this wall or the, the, this support structure to hold up this, you know, uh, several hundred year old building, the exterior wall, then they took out the guts of the building. They demolished everything inside the building. And then very slowly, in its place, they built inside the historic edifice of this old building a brand new, modern, high-tech office building. And so you could walk by this building and on the one hand say, that's a brand new building. And at the same time, on the other hand, you could say it looks exactly like it always has. And that, I think, is a picture of what Paul is describing in Colossians chapter 3. Because what he's talking about is God beginning to do a work in those who have put their trust in Christ. And what he's saying is that to your friends, to your co-workers, to your kind of casual acquaintances, to those who don't really know you, from the outside, when God does this renovation work on you, you still look the same as you always have. And yet on the inside, he is stripping away the you know, rot and decay that has grown up through years of misuse and neglect and abuse. He is changing you. He is making you into something that is clean and beautiful and welcoming. And this work takes a long time, and it's messy, and it's difficult. And if you were to just kind of take a snapshot every day, you might not even notice any change at all. And yet, over the period of years, the, uh, the transformation, this work of renovation, is startling. God, in, God is changing you. If you have put your trust in Christ, what Paul is telling us is that God is changing you. And he's making you into the person that you, that you were actually created to be. He is making you not into some kind of like uh, uptight, boring person that you wouldn't even really want to know, much less become. Um, He is actually going to change you into the best possible version of yourself. He is doing a work of renovation from the inside out, changing you into the person that he has created you to be. This morning, we're concluding our vivid series, this short series in the book of Colossians. And I want, I want to try to just, um, as we conclude this series, get a, like a, an overview of the book of Colossians because I think it's really the big picture of what Paul has kind of sketched for us in the, in the first three chapters of Colossians is really a, a far-reaching and beautiful picture of who Jesus is and what he wants to do in your life. Uh, in, in chapter 1, Paul starts off talking about the majesty and the glory and the, the incomparable beauty of Jesus. Uh, And and what he's saying there is that Jesus, um, that you need to see who Jesus truly is. But it's not until you really see Jesus as he is that you'll really begin to understand anything else for what it really is either. And so that's what he's done in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he tells us that this Jesus, the one who is the fullness of deity, that he actually fills believers and so the, the fullness of God that is in Jesus is in you because Jesus is in you and you are in him. But what he said there when he talks about union with Christ, uh, what, what he's saying is that what changes in us initially is not actually anything in us, um, but what, what he changes is our status. What changes is, in a way, everything because we are with Christ um, I'm going to tie myself in knots if i say anything more about it. If you missed it, go back on the podcast and listen to, to, to the Colossians 2 Union with Christ because it's, it's a profound, incredible truth. But now what I want, and the reason I'm saying this is because what Paul is actually saying now in chapter 3, what he said in chapter 2 is the first thing that changes about you is your status. And in chapter 3 he, he now says, now what I want you to do is learn how to live into that reality. God has changed what's true about you in Christ. Now he's going to show us how to actually begin to live in light of that new truth. If you are in Christ, you have a new family. And a new name has been placed on you. And a new nature is alive within you. And God is renovating you and making you into the person that he created you to be in the first place. If you are in Christ, God is, God is at work in you. He is renovating your life, and Paul describes this renovation in two ways. And this is what I want to look at this morning. He says he He says two things are happening, and they're not like step one and step two, um, like the first has to be done before the second. They're both happening at the same time, and yet for the sake of clarity, it's really important to see that these are you know to see these two the distinct things that God is doing in you if you have put your trust in Christ. And the first thing that we see is this, that there is a putting to death. If you have um, put your trust in Christ then God is renovating you, and the first thing that that involves is, is, is a putting to death. What Paul is talking about is making a decisive break with our sinful tendency. Our union with Christ changes our relationship with sin. And what changes, the way that our relationship, the way that the relationship of a Christian to sin is changed, what is it? Does it mean Christians don't sin anymore? Well, um, hopefully we all know the answer to that, because it's pretty obvious, right? Clearly, that Paul is not saying that Christians don't sin anymore. But what he is saying is that um, the inevitability of your sin has been broken. Um it's not you will sin. You will continue to sin. This is a work that will take place for the rest of your life. But what has changed is that you no longer have to sin. You are no longer a slave to sin. I could put it like this, I um I have a weakness for food. And um, just in general, but like I just have this this tendency to like when I if I go out to eat, I just am gonna eat too much. And um uh <laughs> I have, like, for for many, many years, if I go somewhere and and there are fajitas on the menu, like, that, it's impossible. That's what I'm going to get. And, um, I mean, I I used to go out, I was a college pastor, and we would go out to eat regularly with students at Chili's, and I would just, I'm going to eat fajitas, and I'm going to finish those fajitas every time. And, uh, I mean, you can imagine going out to lunch, and you're with a group of friends, and maybe you're going out to, like, I don't know a big burger place right and and the first guy orders i'm gonna have a burger and a beer and the second guy orders a burger and a beer and then the third guy says i think i'm gonna have a salad and like a cup of water maybe a lemon wedge right and then and then i'm next right what am i gonna do i mean i might order the burger and the beer but i don't have to anymore right i don't have to i can make a good decision (laughs) Theoretically possible. And that's what God is doing in you in a much more profound way. But honestly, it might include changing how you order lunch, too. Right? You don't have to sin if you're in Christ. It is not inevitable. You will, you will continue to fail. Um, but you don't have to sin. You are not a slave to your sin anymore. And so Paul encourages us to live into the reality of our union with Christ. By taking a decisive, intentional, making a decisive, intentional decision to put to death your sinful tendencies, I want to try to explain to you what that what that means. Um, A friend of mine, who is a pastor uh, at a church in uh, in in South Carolina, um, was telling me this week about um, the their their church owns their church building, and they've hired this this man who's kind of the groundskeeper and maintenance guy at their church. And he was telling me this man's story and uh, th- this man they've hired, he was, uh, he was a white supremacist. And uh, early in his life, you know, he, just, he was just full of anger and hatred and racism. And over the years, he had covered his body in racist tattoos. And eventually this man, I don't know the details, but he was arrested he went to prison. And in prison he met Jesus. And he became a Christian. And when he gets out of prison, he comes out of prison and he is a new man. And yet he is covered head to toe in these racist tattoos. And so he gets a job at this church and he's doing yard landscaping work in South Carolina in the hot, humid you know, year-roundness of South Carolina. And he's always wearing long sleeves and long pants because he's ashamed of the way his body looks. And so members of the church take up a collection to to pay for this man to get these tattoos removed. And people from the church volunteer to drive him to get these treatments and it's incredibly painful. And it takes a long time, and he has to keep going back, and he has to keep going back, and, and it hurts, and it's expensive. And eventually, the, the specialist who is doing these tattoo removals, there's some move by what's going on that actually agrees to, to do the tattoo removals for free. And that is a picture of what Paul is talking about in this passage. I mean, that's a literal picture in this man's life. I think it's a picture of what, you know, metaphorically he's doing in each of our lives that putting to death our sin involves stripping away the ugliness of our sin. And it's hard, and it takes a long time, and it's painful, and yet it's good for us. You know, in my in my sin, in our sin, we have built up, we have built our lives around our greed. Um, we have built our lives around, Paul talks about sexual immorality. Um, you know, we can't, Some of us couldn't imagine uh, living a life without our sexual immorality, without our, our self-absorption, um, without using our wo- words to wound others instead of building others up. Uh, we have been judgmental. We have been prejudiced. We have been racist. And yet in Christ, Paul is saying, that is not who you are anymore. It's not who you are anymore. So you should make an intentional, decisive decision to put those parts of you to death. It's so tempting to say, uh, I'm just going to kind of keep my sin. Like I want it to be like right there in my blind spot. Like I don't want to look at it, but I want to know it's close. Paul says, slam the door. Turn your back. Walk away from it. It is done. Don't fool yourself. You know that You know that if you keep it close, that you will go running to it in moments of weakness, in moments of of discomfort. So close the door. Put it to death. Why? um, Why why is it so important that we put to death the sin in us? Well, I have to talk about this. Um, This is not going to be the most popular thing that I say this morning. But um, um, verse 6 says this. He says, "On account of these, these things, these sinful tendencies in you, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God. If anybody is like live tweeting this, you might want to hashtag wrath of God. Such an incredibly popular concept, you know, for in our culture. Um, no, really, like the wrath of God. Do we really believe that God is angry? Um, I thought we believed that God is a God of love. Why is God so angry?" Um, you know, you might remember this. A few years back, there was a NFL player who it, it came to light that he had, over years, uh, been abusive to his wife. And when it came to light, when you know, when, when his past came to light, the NFL responded by suspending him from for, from playing in two games. See, I don't know if you remember this. This was like three, four years ago, something like that. Two games, right? Um, and there was, just, there was a public na- nationwide outcry. Um, the USA Today wrote just this scathing review of the NFL's lack of action. Uh, the the U- USA Today said, There is not enough pink in the world to whitewash the NFL's continued disregard for women. As the league plasters its fields with pink ribbons, and decks its players out in pink cleats and pink towels this month in an effort to fool us into thinking it cares for the health of its female fans. Its handling of this player's suspension for domestic violence shows what a farce it all is. Um, Football fans were calling for the commissioner uh, to lose his job. I mean, right, um, everybody, uh, two games, are you kidding me? Now think about, uh, the, you know, what, what is being communicated there. We are morally outraged when the commissioner of football does not punish sin. And yet we think that God won't punish sin. We think that somehow God's anger over sin is opposed to his love. But, I mean, what are we angry about the NFL for, right? It's love for women that angers us over the lack of care about the issue of domestic abuse, right and it is God's love for his people that makes him so angry and grieved for his people's sin. His wrath is not opposed to his love. his wrath is caused by his love for us. God is angry about your sin he grieves over your sin but if you are in Christ then you know you are no longer a slave to your sin. So put it to death. Put it to death. You don't have to live like that anymore. Don't just turn a shoulder and, and kind of leave it in your blind spot. Walk away from it. It will be hard. It will at times be painful, but it is the best possible thing for you. John Owen. Um, John Owen was um, is often regarded as the greatest English theologian. Um, John Owen had this great phrase. He said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Put your sin to death. It's the best thing for you. Like a skilled sculptor, God is stripping away everything else that remains until all that remains is just you as you ought to be. Okay, so that's the first point. This work of renovation that God is doing in you if you are in Christ. Uh, is, is it involves a putting to death. And yet that's not all, that's not all Paul says. And, and I just want to pause for a minute and acknowledge that, that for some of us, if you have maybe grown up in the church, um, part of your, your hesitance about Christianity is because that's really all you think Christianity is. Um, And and what I just said is right and true and good. And yet there is also a a positive dimension to what God is doing in your life. And God is not just inviting you to follow Jesus and saying, okay, I want you to give up everything that you love and everything that's important to you. Um, There is so much, uh, there, there is a stripping away and a putting to death and it's hard and it's painful. And yet there is so much good and positive that God is calling us to as well. Uh, and so the second thing that I want you to see is not just that there is a putting to death, but there is also a putting on the new self. God, Paul invites us, God invites us through Paul um, to put on our new self, our true self. Um, you know, I know Christmas was a little while ago, but um, Christmas, we have four kids. And and sometimes I feel like Christmas shopping um, you know the joy of buying gifts for my kids, uh, you know, just goes away, and um, and it just becomes such a chore. And um, you know, and I think about, you know, maybe maybe one year instead of trying to figure out what my kids actually want, I'll just take them all to Toys R Us and get them each a basket and say, okay, just whatever you want, you know, go fill your basket, and then. You know, I think, not to pick on Porter, but Porter would be the one to do this. He would run, he would like, he would run, he'd fill his basket, he'd come up to the front of the store, and he'd be like, I'd be like, all right, that's what you want? Yeah! Well, you're not getting any of it. Let's go home. I just wanted you to see what you're not going to get for Christmas. (laughs) Worst parent ever, right? I mean... Just to be clear, I've never obviously done that. I would never do that. Nobody would ever do that, right? But that's who you think God is. Or you think that God might say, okay, in that basket, you've filled it all up, now you can pick one thing. As long as it doesn't cost more than $25. that's it. Right? And I, and I really think, I don't think it's an overstatement to say, Every non-Christian and about 85% of Christians think that that's who God is. But here's a better picture of what God is doing in you and for you. You remember the movie Annie? Um, Annie, the orphan, is taken away from... The orphanage, and, and is it Mrs. Han, Miss Hannigan, um, and she's brought into Daddy Warbucks' house, and there's this kind of grand entrance as she walks into this palatial estate, the marble floors, and there's servants doing all these, you know, things, and uh, uh, what's her Grace, um, I think is the is her kind of woman who's I don't I don't know what the title is, but um, is bringing her in, and. Um, and Grace is telling her, you know, who everybody is and what all that's gonna happen. And then she kind of looks at Annie. Of course they're singing and dancing. And and she looks at Annie and says, Annie, what would you like to do first? And you remember what Annie says? She says, First the windows, and then the floors. That way if I drip. She says, Annie, you're not we didn't bring you here to work. You're our guest. You get to live here. This is all for you. And that's a picture of God's grace, grace and love for you. He doesn't bring you into his family to say, you better get it together. He says, I brought you into my family because I love you. And you are welcome, and this is all for you. And because this is all for you, I want you to live like it's true. It's been given to you as a gift, so put it on. Um, Read with me verses 12 and following. Paul says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And in verse 14, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Don't just put off, put to death what you used to be, but now become what you were created to be. Um, Paul is saying when God looks at you, you know, you you are not a greedy person. That's not who you are. I know that's that's how I have lived, that's how you have lived, but that's not who you really are. You don't have to live like that anymore. You can be generous with other people now because God in Christ has lavished his love on you. You don't have to be um, so guarded and self-protective You don't have to be so slow to open up to other people. You don't have to protect yourself or worry about somebody hurting you because that's not who you are. And in Christ, God has made himself vulnerable and has moved towards you and has shown you his great love for you. And that's yours, and you are in him, and so you can put it on. It's like Paul is saying that um, hidden away in your closet are treasures that have been given to you for Christmases and birthdays past, and yet you've never actually put them on. And they're there, and they've been yours all along, and yet you need to go and get them out of your closet and put them on. And love people, and be gracious to people, and be kind, and be generous. They've been yours. You need to put them on. God is calling you to become the person that he has made you to be, and he's changing you. This is important. He doesn't, change. he doesn't love you because you have changed. but he changes you because he loves you. I remember several years ago, um, I was trying to get one of my kids to clean their room and uh, it was failing miserably and I kept sending him upstairs and saying, "Go clean your room." And instead he'd just go up to his room and get something else out and make a bigger mess and come back down and say, go clean your room. And I'm getting increasingly frustrated and I can hear him playing up there. And I kind of, I'm going up the stairs and I'm stomping up the stairs because I want to make it like really clear that the wrath of dad is coming. And uh, <laughs> I'm stomping down the hall and he looks up at me with just terror in his eyes. And I saw that look in the my son's eyes and it just changed me and I got down on the ground and I gave him a hug and I looked him in the eyes and I said your dad loves you and he just kind of melted and then we cleaned his room together and it was the kindness of his father that allowed him to actually obey the father's love changes you he doesn't love you because you've changed, but you are able to obey him because, because, he loves you. So let me just finish with this. Practically speaking, what is what does this look like? What is this gonna? How is this gonna work itself out in your life? I think it's important to to to, to just um, be clear about this, because what this means is that if you take seriously this call to put to death sin in your life, and put on all that God has said is true of you in Christ, what it means is that living a Christian life is going to l- look like living a life where you fail a lot. Um, it's not a life of failure. But you will fail a lot. Um, and that's actually, the part of th- th- that's actually the important part of the process. Because the only way to grow in humility is to actually fail regularly. Um, several years ago, I uh, I started CrossFit. Um, I have uh, given that up recently, as you can probably tell from looking at me. Um, but I remember the, the you know the first couple times I I was I was working out. And I started going to this gym, and and at one point, I, I, the whole idea is you work until you fail, right? You you work out until you fail, and at one point. I was just so exhausted, and I'm, you know, I'm lifting weights, and I just let out this loud, kind of groan as I dropped the weight, and I was just spent, and my coach, when I at that moment, says, that is the sound of progress, <laughs> and I was like, I mean, you couldn't time that more perfectly because it sounded to me like that was the sound of failure, I'm terrible at this. But he was saying it's not until you actually fail, I mean physically, that is how you get stronger, right? Um, if, you're gonna gr- you know, if you want to start running, you've got to run until you fail if you're going to get faster. If you just go for a little walk every day, you're not going to get any faster. You're in, you know, in better shape. All growth involves failure. All change involves failure. Don't let that discourage you. Um, Being a Christian is a very complicated condition. Um, If you're not failing regularly, it probably means that you're not trying. It probably means that you're not actually changing, because all change involves failure. But that's not who you are. Who you are is hidden with Christ in heaven. And what you're experiencing is the process by which God is going to make you into the person that he created you to be. He is going to wean you off of your self-centeredness, off of your pride, off of your arrogance. And he is going to enable you to put on those treasured possessions that have been yours in Christ all along, and you didn't even know it. And that's good news. I don't know if that strikes you as good news. You know, 10 years ago, I had a lot more optimism that I could change myself. In my mid-20s, I was like, you know, by the time I'm mid-30s, I'm going to be so much -er." (laughs) whatever-er. Now in my mid-30s, I'm like, I look at myself and I'm like, you know what? There's some things about me that I am just never, ever going to be able to change. And you know what Paul is saying here is that even though this is difficult, it is profoundly good news because God is not done with you. You are not just set in your ways, but he is at work in you to create you into the person or to tr- renovate you into the person that he created you to be all along. And that's why we trust in him. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you that you don't simply leave people the way you find them. God, I thank you that that we can come to you as we are. And yet, you don't leave us as we are. And so, Father, I pray that you would enable us to look uh, not to ourselves, but to Christ. And seeing his beauty and his glory and his majesty and splendor. And the overwhelming beauty of his sacrifice for us. That we would cling to him. And that we would begin to experience this work that you are then going to do in us. That we wouldn't run away every time it gets hard or awkward or painful. but that you would hold on to us and continue to work in us to make us people uh, who don't just look at ourselves but love you and love our neighbors with all that we are. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.